The Lord be with you. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help, that in all our works, begun, continued, and ended in you, we may, we may glorify your holy name and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Well, we're still going through the catechism uh, in this section on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we just kind of we just got into the temptation section. Uh, we're going to start up with uh, with question two hundred two this morning. Uh, we did a little bit on it last week, uh, but uh, we'll we'll keep going this week. So, uh, question two hundred two: What is the sixth petition? The sixth petition is, "And lead us not into temptation." What is temptation? Temptation is any enticement to turn from faith in God and to violate His commandments. That word enticement is really great because it sounds appropriately uh, uh, troublesome, right? You know, if you uh, if you listen to politics or anything, enticements are a bad thing, right? They're like uh, just kind of uh, tempting politicians away from making ethical decisions, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately because of the kind of uh, ethics that are required of us in times of crisis. Uh, we... Uh, can we do good for ourselves and good for others at the same time? You know, and a lot of people, I think, are obviously saying, no, you know, <laughs> we're going to do good for ourselves, and then if we've got a little extra, we'll do good for everyone else. Um, I was fascinated. I'm, I'm fascinated by this because um, you may not know this, but I, I studied supply chain management in college. I was a business major. It was kind of a wild deal. But uh, I remember uh, one of the ways that uh, businesses track global demand is through sales of diapers and toilet paper. Um, well, why? Because the demand theoretically should be constant and and increase at the rate of population growth, right? Any any fluctuations like what we've seen lately are all going to be artificial. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that what people are doing is they're saying, uh, well, uh, we might not be able to go to the store. That's it. Like <laughs> there will be constant supply of diapers and toilet paper. It's gonna it's gonna keep being made. That's not a problem. Uh, but but it just means people are saying, well, I just can't go to the store. Um, so I'm gonna stock up now. But what that tells us should be rather clear, right? Which is that people are acting in their in their in their own self interest before anyone else. Um, and uh, and there's a kind of enticement to that, right? It's it's a very enticing thought. Um, because, you know, I've got a bunch of kids, and I've usually got, you know, one or two in diapers, and I think it would be awful if we were out of all that. Um, I can't even imagine. So, there we have it. Um, question 205. Question 204. <laughs> it's hilarious. Everything is just topsy-turvy today. Okay. What are the sources of temptation? I am tempted by the false promises of the world, the selfish desires of my flesh, and the lies of the devil all of which war against God and my spiritual well-being. Um, the three sources of temptation in the Christian tradition have always been the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, how, where do we see this most prominently? It's actually not in Scripture per se, although Scripture is clearly at work there, um, and, uh, and uh, you, can, you can see that. But this is classically in the baptismal rites of the ancient church, this renunciation, a threefold renunciation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, and, and in fact, it's kind of always been amazing to me. Uh, I attended a, an Eastern Orthodox baptism a couple of years ago uh, when when uh, Carlos Colon's baby was baptized over at St. Nicholas, and the 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 renunciations were identical to ours. 
almost identical. You know, it was, these grounds, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the and the godmother standing there, you know, at the doors of the church, facing the doors, and making making the renunciation, and then doing the ceremonial spit, which happens in the Eastern Church, where where you go you know, <laughs> after the renunciations. Well, why? Because uh, because the Christians uh, 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 take on this on all these temptations is that they are they are as nothing. They're 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 worthless. Um, and they're false. Um, these are false promises, um, and uh, and that's the only way an enticement can actually work, is if it's false. Um, and that's all it can be, right? Um, you know, it's it's almost it's it's very simple in one sense, which is that all that can be offered by the enemy, all that can be offered by the tempter, is something which God has made for our good. Um, and all he can do is twist it, the subtle twisting. Um, and so, so we think about these three: the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what do we mean by the world? We don't mean the we don't mean the world as if it's sort of like a, you know the earth that we walk on. That's not what we mean. Um, it's more like uh, something like the world of sports or the world of uh, interpretive dance, right? It's it's uh, you know these 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 worlds in that sense can be very. Uh, Area filled with strife and comp- competition and uh, and uh, and envy and all the rest. Um, we can and you know this if you have interactions in the world, you can constantly be over, almost overwhelmed by the amount of ambition that's uh, that's there. Um, in one of my favorite shows, uh, uh, Thirty Rock. No idea why I'm bringing this up right now, but it, it, it always strikes me when I think about covetousness. They during the whole Conan O'Brien and uh, and uh, what was it, um, the Jay Leno Conan O'Brien battle? They were they 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 pitted two janitors against each other on the show, <laughs> and and they were envious of one another and fighting against one another. And so and I was thinking about that because it's you know. Uh, you don't you don't think about uh, the lowly having ambition or fighting one another for position, and yet we do it all the time, right? This is a very normal thing, and that's what makes it so funny is that uh, there's there's this problem of even even in the lowest uh, classes of society uh, among people that uh, would apparently seem to have no ambition, there's tons of ambition, uh, tons of raw envy, tons of, of malice going on, um, and and our our. Our desires in the world and the promises of the world to fulfill us um, are often dashed with disappointments. Um, we think about the selfish desires of my flesh. Um, our flesh, uh, our fleshly desires, can be very, very, very uh, troubling at times. Um, and uh, and it's not to say that that flesh is evil. That's not what's being said. What's being said is that the desires of the flesh, the selfish desires of the flesh, are 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 temptations. Uh, and then, of course, the lies of the devil, which tempt us uh, to pride. And these war against God and against my spiritual well-being. What help do you seek from God in the face of temptation? I ask God to increase my faith to trust him, enliven my conscience to fear him, soften my heart to love him, and strengthen my will to obey him, that I may resist evil and stand in the face of temptation. I love this answer. It's so well done. Because there's a progression. If you follow it, I ask God to increase my faith. Okay, so where does all this begin in the fight against temptation? Does it start with, I'm going to fight against temptation? No. Where does it start? In prayer. 
ask God to increase our faith, to trust him, uh, to enliven my conscience to fear him. So built upon the, 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 the foundation of faith is this, is this uh, uh, enlivening of the conscience. This is an important question uh, because it's, it's often uh, misunderstood uh, by people today. But, but what is a conscience? Is it the, the demon on one shoulder and the angel on the other having an argument about what you're going to do next? Not at all. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually, it actually refers to with knowledge is the, is the Latin root. It means um, what, what kind of knowledge do we go about our lives with? What do we know, in other words? Um, what do we know to be good? What do we know to be evil? Um, and, and how do we follow that? Um, and uh, a lot of people today uh, suffer from unformed consciences, or in other words, dead consciences. Um, the, the, it's not that they don't think about good and evil. It's that, it's that they just don't care to know. <laughs> um, and so this is a, an ongoing issue that we have today. Um, but, but this is built for Christians upon the basis of faith and trust in God. Um, and this means that um, it's not so much about making the right decision as it is in trusting God with, with, with daily life and trusting God with what we know. Um, one of the disastrous effects of modern ethical thinking is that we've become essentially captive to a decision-based ethic where, you know, you'll, you'll see this all the time. And if, if I bring it to your attention, you'll see it even more. Uh, you go to Target. And you're in the aisle, and uh, mother is just struggling with her petulant child in a cart. And, uh, and she says, Tyler, you need to make better decisions. <laughs> and, and I always laugh because I think Tyler's problem is not his decision making. <laughs> Tyler's problem is that, that he has disordered passions. And, and he's three, so what do you expect, you know? And, and the, best, the best case is get through the checkout line as fast as possible, get him in the car, take him home, get him something to eat, and put him down for a nap. You know, it's not complicated, but, but his problem is not making poor decisions. Does that make sense? Um, he, he is suffering from uh, passions being out of whack, uh, flesh crying out for, uh, for something. Uh, it's all that kind of thing. Uh, but yet, we today often just talk about decisions, decisions, decisions. And, you know, the reality of it is, and, and if you want a really good book on this, I, I can't recommend enough Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. Uh, in that book, he, he basically proves that we don't make moral or ethical or any kind of decision based upon uh, reason. We actually intuit what we're going to do, then we do it, and then we reason ex post facto what we did. <laughs> so we say, I did it, and now I'm going to come up with a good reason why I did it. Does that make sense? Um, and so, uh, so we know that uh, these kind of decision-based, they don't really work out in, in real life. Um, although, thinking about what we will do and how we do it is, is part of our conscience, right? We have a formed conscience. We think about things. We, we, uh, we, we consider our actions as a whole, right? But in the moment, uh, we, we work very much by intuition. Um, and that's a very helpful, helpful thing to keep in mind. That means that uh, temptation is often um, most effective when it works upon our intuition. Um, so how do you, how do you, how do you steer uh, what Jonathan Knight would call the elephant. How do you steer the elephant? Well, uh, it's all but impossible, right, <laughs> to, to steer the elephant because the elephant has its has its own intuitions and wills, and and it likes uh, 
you know, drinking from this pond with his trunk instead of that pond. And why? Well, because that one's blue and that one's green. And, you know, that's just how he does it. Um, and why do we do these things? Well, this to me speaks to the power of, uh, of habits. It speaks to the power of, of Christian liturgy to form those, uh, those intuitions. It speaks to the power of, uh, of, uh, of repeated actions, right? Um, because uh, all too often we become uh, captive to uh, intuitions about the world that are that are completely malformed. Um, so that that happens in this conscience to enliven my conscience to fear Him. Um, by this fear, we don't mean uh, kind of cowering in fear. We mean uh, to to rightly honor God uh, and to rightly uh, think of Him in all things. To soften my heart to love Him. Now this is again it's a progression of of things that's going on here. Um, we can't love God simply by having an enlivened conscience. That's quite true, right, so far as it goes. Um, we can know the right thing and still not do it. Uh, so to have a heart to love God is really is really essential in this. Well, how do we do that? Well, we don't do that. God does that. <laughs> um, and it happens again. We, we pray, and God gives us that gift of a heart to love him. Um, and one of the wonderful things that uh, Christians have prayed through the, through the centuries is uh, asking God to love him, to let us love him more. Um, I can never forget the first time I read it, I just, I, I sat there and just wept for a couple, for three, four minutes. Um, Therese of Lisieux, this great uh, French nun from the last century, uh, prayed once. She said, she said in her prayers, in her prayer journal, I want to love you more than anyone ever has. That, that was her ambition. Um, and that's a great, a great inspiration. And to strengthen my will to obey him. Um, this, is a, this is great language because um, modern people tend to think that the will is up here. Anthropologically, that's how we think about how we do things, right? Again, I think Jonathan Hyde's work shows that this is completely wrong. Where does our will sit? Now, it doesn't work biologically, right? But, but, but we, we human beings work all by analogies, right? We, we constantly work by analogies. Yeah, my will's right here. I, I do what my heart wants. That's really important. Um, I do what my heart wants. Um, and constantly in the Gospels, Jesus is calling, is calling attention to people to uh, understand the condition of their heart, not their mind. Um, he doesn't speak to the mind. He speaks to the heart. Um, I think about this all the time. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost doesn't say they were cut to the center of their brains. It says they were cut to the heart by this message. Um, And the great, you know, the fathers and uh, Martin Luther in particular speak a great deal about how uh, the, the way to someone's heart is through their ear. It's almost as if the ear is connected directly to the heart. Um, and uh, and again, this is not meant to be a biological analogy. It's meant to be it's meant to be an analogy of how we actually operate, what we actually do, um, and strengthen my will. So the, the will is strengthened to obey God uh, by the heart uh, being called to love Him. Uh, and after all, this is this is a really uh, key ingredient here, which is the interaction between love and obedience. Um, there's actually wonderful, wonderful research uh, by people like Piaget into the questions of, well, why do children do what they do? How, why do they act the way they do? And they act the way they do based upon uh, their, uh, their um, 
feelings of belonging within a certain place, right? So if children feel like they have a belonging in a place within a household, right, what do they do? They undertake these repeated actions, right, like chores. They feel like they, they, feel like they fit. Um, and if they feel out of that, then they don't. And what we're seeing here is the connection between love and obedience. They work together hand in hand. Um, and this is why it's rather unfortunate things like the, the marriage right have dropped words like obedience, right? Obedience is essential to love. Why? Because I can't very well say I love you. Well, the very thing you ask me to do is something I'm not doing. Right? The very thing that you've, that you've required of me is, well, I, I don't care, you know? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, and uh, uh, Ella and I have been reading um, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy during Lent. And uh, it's just, it's just, it continually strikes me how brilliant, especially that hideous strength is. Um, because there's a wonderful portion, if you're not familiar with the work, it's about, it's about these, uh, uh, I don't know how to quite put it, space adventurers having various, uh, various other adventures. And then in the end, there's an apocalypse and it's quite fun. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and this, uh, this traveler says to this, woman who's in crisis and her husband has gotten involved in this nasty organization and she doubts his love and she doubts her love for him and he says you know you, you're failing in love because you failed in obedience um and and she says but i thought marriage was about equality <laughs> and he says to her equality is equality is not the stuff of marriage um and uh, uh we actually we actually what we learn through obedience is to subjugate our feelings of a desire for for parity, right? To say, no, I'm actually going to put myself under you in this in this way. Um, and love actually consists in this. We say, I'm actually going to subjugate my desires to the desires of another. Um, this is this is uh, this is complete throughout the Christian tradition that uh, to love someone is to actually put yourself um, in their hands, to uh, to put your will in their hands, and to to leave your self will and self direction behind. Um, now, does this mean that um, does this mean that uh, you can you can do what someone wants when they're asking you to do something evil to them? Well, no, not at all. Uh, but sometimes it does mean, and this is a really tough a really tough thing to deal with. But sometimes it does mean um, bearing with their weaknesses in a way that might seem uh, disjointed. Uh, sometimes it does mean uh, being very uh, uh, submitting to uh, to things that in your own judgment you 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 find abhorrent um, well why not because you want to do evil things that's not that's not the reason the reason is that uh, that uh, sometimes we 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 uh, we submit to others um, and we set our conscience aside for a time um, and uh, this happens all the time. Sometimes we don't even know it. Uh, but but it's a uh, it's it's one of the uh, tough things to to work through as you as you uh, move through life. Uh, does God lead you into temptation? No, God never tempts anyone, nor is He the cause of any sin. But He does allow me to be tested so that I may grow in faith and obedience. Particularly, this this comes straight out of James chapter one. Um, God is not tempted by anyone. Um, and in fact, uh, James goes on and says that, uh, that with the temptation, God is providing a way out of the temptation, um, almost like another door in the room. Uh, and uh, and that, that's it's always the case. There's, there's some way out. 
Um, we are allowed, and this is a tough thing for uh, people to even consider, but um, in, in, uh, in, in the world of theology, there's this understanding of uh, God's permissive will, right? I mean, does he actively will it? Does God actively will temptation? No, no, no. And in fact, the most the most important place where we actually see this is in the book of Job. There's a very uh, very advanced understanding of, of how this works. Um, note that uh, God doesn't say, "Satan, go tempt Job." What does He say? Yeah, have you considered it? And then He basically just kind of He just allows this temptation to go on. He allows this this uh, this evil to befall on Job, and you're sitting there and and you should have this have this thought. Well, did God will all these evils against Job? No. But but there's a there's an allowance for it. Um, and this is very hard for people to really to really understand. But uh, I think parents probably understand it a lot better than others, right? Um, I always use this this analogy because it happens all the time. Um, my kids love to climb on the back of couches, and uh, and you know it's expressly against the rules, right? We say you are not to climb on the back of the couch. However, if we see a kid climbing on the back of the couch, one of the things we just do is just say, uh, I told you not to climb on the back of the couch. When you fall, I'll pick you up. But that's about it. You don't expect a lot of sympathy from me because I'm going to let you fall, right? Why? Because I'm a good parent, right? And, And sometimes natural consequences to our actions are the best teachers. And this is something the ancients really understand. Natural consequences are an unbelievable teacher. Um, and so we have to leave this in place. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say parents really do go wrong when they don't perceive properly that natural consequences are the best way for a child to learn something, right? When they're constantly trying to uh, uh, come up with novel consequences for things, right? Well, you know, it's like this. You made a mess in the kitchen. Well, what's the natural consequence? Not you're grounded for a week, but you're going to clean it up, right? <laughs> you you uh, you uh, you spent all your money. Well, that stinks, right? Um, well, and and often their response would be, "Well, but you 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 let me." No, I didn't. <laughs> like you decided that you were going to spend all your money. Now you don't have any. That's a natural consequence. It's very very helpful to understand that. Um, so so these allowances for uh, temptation are there, but we also. Uh, believe that God is constantly showing a way out, um, and and so that we may grow in faith and obedience. Um, so there's that. That's at least part of the way towards getting to this understanding of theodicy. Why does God allow evil in the world? Well, one way to answer it, and I don't think it's the only answer, I think it's one of the answers, is that, uh, that uh, enduring temptation actually builds human character. Um, being allowed to be tempted makes us uh, makes us actually stronger. Does God will the temptation? No, not actively, but he does allow it. What are ways to guard against temptation? As I abide in Christ, I can guard against temptation by praying for protection and strength, confessing my sins, recalling God's word, avoiding tempting situations, and seeking the support of fellow Christians. As I abide in Christ, what does this mean? Abide. What's an abode? Yeah, it's a living place. It means that Christ is the locus of our life. <laughs> He's where we live. Um, and uh, as Paul says, 
about God. In, in, in him we live and move and have our being. That's what, that's what abiding means. Um, we, we abide in Christ. Um, and we can guard against this temptation constantly by praying for protection and strength. Um, I love this, this uh, praying for protection against uh, temptation. That's certainly what we do. We pray, lead us not into temptation. It's a little awkwardly worded, uh, both in Greek and in English, uh, so that we, we share that. Uh, but it's, it's, it's to say, um, not, not to pray that God won't do what he doesn't do, but, but to instead say something like this. Um, uh, what often the translation will be, just for clarity's sake, is save us from the time of trial, right? Um, uh, save us in the time of trial. Um, come to help us, right? We pray for protection and for strength. Uh, one of the best ways to endure temptation, especially if you're dealing with a constant temptation that comes up all the time, is to confess your sins. Um, I've uh, often been, uh, well, I shouldn't say surprised, but... but um, it happens often that I'll have people come to me for confession that are saying, I've never been able to win in this thing that I struggle against, ever. I've always dealt with it, always been a problem. And uh, through the years, you know, they've come to be free of it. Well, why? It wasn't because they grit, they gritted their teeth and sort of uh, uh, you know, bore their way through it, but because they were constantly uh, making confessions. Um, recalling God's word. Of course, we see this. Jesus does this in the Gospels. Uh, avoiding tempting tem- tempting situations. Uh, one of the ways that we should talk about this is in terms of um, avoidance of occasions of sin. Um, you know, think about it this way. If you notice, hey, every time I'm with these people, I wind up gossiping, and I wind up feeling really bad about it. And, uh, you know, so maybe going to coffee with them together is not a good idea. Maybe I could go to have coffee with them separately, and we wouldn't be doing that quite so much. Or uh, maybe uh, you say something like this, um, you know, friends, I've noticed that every time we get together, we wound up gossiping a lot, and um, I'm done with that. <laughs> and if you'd like to still get together, I'm happy to do that, but we can't be doing that anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and let's try not to talk about such things. Uh, uh, but, but if it continues, I'm, I'm just going to, I can't come. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's too much. Um, unless you think, well, that sounds innocuous. Um, hmm. You know, gossip can really wreck a person's life very quickly. Um, uh, and uh, an assassination of character can mean a knife in someone's back that can never be removed. Um, I I think you can probably think about times when this might have happened to you, but um, I remember years ago, uh, I was the victim of great slight uh, by a gossiper. And uh, the, the well was poisoned against me, and I never recovered from it, ever. Um, and uh, actually had to move back to Texas to be free of it because because it was just that, uh, well, it was one of the reasons we moved back to Texas, uh, but it was just that devastating. It was just like it shed just enough doubt uh, as to say, well, you know, that Father Nelson, he's such a mean guy, you know. He doesn't treat anybody with respect or dignity at all. He's so mean. And 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 there was always that suspicion, right? Well, what if I'm wrong and I don't think he's he's uh, he's a nice guy? What if I think, you know, what if what if she's right is the question. Um, and uh, some people can never recover from that. Um, seeking the support of fellow Christians, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's really a wonderful gift to have a Christian fellowship in the midst of temptation. Uh, we find that uh, we can rely on others uh, to bear that burden with us. How can the church help you to resist temptation? 
In the fellowship of Christ's body, I can find companionship when I am lonely or vulnerable, support to resist ungodly influence, wisdom to guard me from folly, exhortation to grow in holiness, and discipline to correct me when I fall into error. Um, I've noticed this among uh, college students. You know, when I was in uh, undergraduate studies at A&M, it was uh, it was completely abnormal that someone would live alone. Like it was just not done. You always had a roommate. Uh, in many cases, students would rent apartments. You know, uh, two students to a room. You know, and they were just crammed in there. Uh, it was just very unheard of for anyone to live alone. And now, uh, you know. Apartment complexes near Baylor are offering uh, single studio apartments to students. Um, why? Well, because uh, we, we have this increasingly lonely society uh, where uh, we're living alone, being alone is considered to be uh, some kind of great good. Well, in the Christian perspective, um, consider it. What does God say when Adam is alone in the garden? It's not good for man to be alone. Man is created, you know, Adam is created good, yeah, but it's not good. So there's only one thing that's not good in creation prior to the fall. What is it? Adam's loneliness. And then we see later when Eve is alone, what happens? Temptation comes in. Um, now, whether you believe that that literally happened or it's an analogy for something, the analogy is perhaps stronger, right? It's that we are we are most vulnerable when we're alone. Um, and part of my uh, concern about this current crisis is that uh, by being uh, almost chronically alone, uh, we'll almost be more chronically alone. Um, and uh, and that's, that's not great. Um, so there's that to deal with. Um, but we do need uh, to find uh, companionship uh, uh, in the midst of loneliness and vulnerability uh, and support to resist uh, ungodly influence. Um, this, this is one of the things that I would say about um, the, the glories of a parish church in the midst of a lonely society is that uh, uh, there's enough going on so that if you, if you, are, uh, if you are lonely, um, there, there's always something to go to, right? There's always uh, morning prayer to go to. There's always uh, uh, times of, of fellowship and coffee, and there's always somebody to talk to, and it's just a wonderful opportunity, right? Um, you can always just come in. Um, you can always invite someone over to, to have dinner with you. You can always say, hey, let's go do this, or let's go do that. Um, we also can find uh, in the body of the church wisdom to guard me from folly. Um one of the things that I've come to know uh, as I've as I've turned forty is that one of the, my my uh, presenting plagues in my life is a lack of insight into my own situation. Um, I I only see myself through my own monologue about myself, right? Um, it's almost like that wonderful uh, college from last week. We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves, um, which. It's really bad grammar, but but it's supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be jarring, right? Um, empowering ourselves to help ourselves. Uh, what is that? Um, it's to say that that uh, that we lack this essential insight and wisdom into our own situations. Um, and so we often go astray simply because we don't know everything. Um, one of the things that I think people really need to get in touch with is the fact that you can't possibly know everything, right? <laughs> There's no way to. Um, you know, there were there was a time in human history where a person could read all the books. Isn't that amazing? Like you could read every book, 
Is that true now? Not even close. I mean, information uh, multiplies at an unbelievable pace. Um, and there's no way that we can know everything. Um, so this actually increases our dependence upon authority. It increases our dependence upon uh, uh, listening to wise people. Um, and uh, you may have noticed this. If you, I'm, I'm not on social media except on Saturday nights during Lent. Uh, but I've noticed this, that uh, you know, everybody's got a darn opinion about COVID-19. And, uh, and you know, who are you going to listen to? And, uh, and one of my friends last night, he just said, golly, just go to the CDC website and the WHO and be done with it, crying out loud. You know, your favorite blogger probably doesn't have anything wise to say about this thing. And I think that's quite good, you know. Uh, these people didn't rise to the top of their profession by being uh, insane uh, uh, lunatics. They, they, they have authority, right? Uh, we do a lot of things based on authority. And we do things that even, that even violate our, our, uh, our most dearly held uh, ideas of how uh, human interactions ought to go. I mean, we're doing that right now by not shaking hands. I mean, it's like we, and, and someone might very well say, well, it's not as though if I shake your hand, the world's going to come to an end. And it's like, well, yeah, but somebody might die, you know, <laughs> is that good enough for you? Uh, and uh, so we, we have to put ourselves under this authority. And we do it all the time without even thinking about it. Um, but, but what we find in the church, and I think this is really, really key, is we find people constantly who have been where we are before. Um, I always find uh, this, um, and especially in kind of a lot of things that have been going on with me in the last year, um, in um, being diagnosed with, with mental health issues and, uh, and going through all that, is that, lo and behold, who sits in my office week after week? People with mental health issues, like people with depression and anxiety. And, and it's like, I'm only recently going through all this, and yet you're like six months behind me, and here you are. You know, it's an amazing thing. But, but that's how it works, right? Um, uh, I love what, what um, the letter of the Hebrews says. You know, it speaks of, of, of Jesus Christ being the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Okay. When I hear that word pioneer, I can't help but think of when I was a little kid. We used to, used to go down to Oregon, and we used to see the Oregon Trail. Um, have you ever seen it? Anyone? You haven't? You've got to go. This is incredible. This is like every American must do this. It's a bucket list thing. Like, go see the Oregon Trail. Because what you see is, even 150 years later, what do you see? You can see the wagon wheel ruts from the Oregon Trail. It's a literal wagon wheel rut place. And even though there have been uh, years and years and years of dust and wind and rain and everything, it's still there. You can go see these wagon wheel ruts. Well, Somebody was the was the was the uh, was the adventurer who went out and laid down that track, but what happened? Other people followed behind it, and given how far the ruts go, they made it. Right? <laughs> they made it. Uh, they made it by following the well trodden path. Uh, this is this is an amazing thing that happens in human beings. Uh, we we follow others in the way. Uh, that leads to eternal life this is what I constantly think about the saints, right? When we're talking about Christ's body, are we just talking about those who are alive? Not at all. In fact, we're talking about all those who come before us in the faith. Um, and, uh, and so we've got a wonderful body of, of, of the saints. And, and so often I think um, Christians would do really well to read the biographies of the saints on a regular basis. Um, one of the great books that you can kind of pick up if you look around here enough 
is a book called Lesser Feasts and Fasts. It's from the old Episcopal Church days, and uh, and they still put it out. But you know, it, every single minor feast, you know, you open up to that date, and you can read about the saints of the day, and it's wonderful. And you can do it at morning prayer if you want, and uh, and you'll get all of that, all of that insight uh, into the, into life. Um, I also find that, uh, and I was I was roundly corrected for this, but um, in, in my list of Lenten reading, I neglected to put uh, women authors in the Lenten list. And uh, a professor at Baylor called me to account, and I said, "You are absolutely right." Um, and and I and I said, and not because um, of the simple fact that women's voices, quote unquote, need to be heard. That's not the point. The point is that the the best spiritual authors are women. <laughs> like. Bar none, like, and and how could I put out a list for Lent without women authors? Like, that's insane, and that's why I repented that publicly. But but seriously, um, you know, you should be reading people like Teresa of Lisieux. You should be reading people like Teresa of Avila. You should be reading people like um, Evelyn Underhill, and um, uh, oh goodness, the poetry of Sophia Cavalletti, and just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Um, and these are saints, and they're and they're meant to uh, to instruct us and be instructive. Um, so I want to encourage you in that. Um, Lent is a good time to take up spiritual reading. It's a great time to take up reading from uh, from wise and uh, indeed even mystical uh, types. And so I want to encourage you in that. Next week we'll pick up with But Deliver Us From Evil. And uh, we're going to turn uh, in the next few weeks, and I hope to do this before Easter, um, I'd like to turn to a bit of a, a practicum on using the prayer book for the daily offices and things like that. So we'll take some time for that. And uh, thank you all. So it'll probably happen in a couple of weeks. All right. Thank you.